It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Scott Shearer, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Scott, this is uh, this is a different podcast for me to record. And uh, you were brought into my life by, I don't know what you call it, destiny, spirituality, God. I don't know exactly, but there's a reason why. And in the 96 hours that I came to know about you and your daughter, Grace, I've truly been humbled. And I wonder if you could start off in five minutes or less, giving people an overview of who you are and why you're on the show today. Well, I'm Grace's dad. I'm on the show because of Grace. And so I'll just tell you about Grace during that five minutes because she's the reason I'm here. Uh, Grace was, uh, Grace had Down syndrome. She was 19 when she died. Uh, we named her after God's grace and Grace, Grace knew God. Uh, she, she called me earthly dad. Uh, that gives you a sense of how she knew her heavenly father. She uh, she was quite an inspiration to me. Uh, she was very high functioning. People would think of Down syndrome as a mental disability, and uh, she yeah, she certainly had some of those those situations. But uh, I would say she outshined most people, and the way she outshined everybody was in the spirit of love. She loved everybody. So, you know, as a human being, typically, you know, we'll reject certain people that we know because they're jerks or whatever. And, you know, Grace would never do that. She just loved everybody. The hardest thing for a human to do is to love the unlovable. Um, and Grace, Grace didn't have that problem. She was, she was great. My, my wife taught her how to read and write. Um, I taught her how to drive a car. You know, so you know, she could she could do everything. The sky was the limit with her. We her give send go page is titled "The Sky's the Limit," and it's because of that. Uh, she she also had quite a sense of humor. You and I were kind of jousting off camera, and uh, you know she uh, she certainly had that sense of humor. You just said you got married in Vegas. I pictured at one point that at some point in Grace's pick in her future, she would do stand up comedy in Vegas, and I would be her sidekick feeding her the jokes and keeping her keeping her on track so if she met you for the first time she would say how are you doing handsome laban <laughs> and then she'd say you want to hear my dirty jokes and uh you'd say well of course i want to hear them and she would say to you uh why didn't the toilet paper cross the road and you'd say i don't know why didn't it cross the road and she'd say because it got stuck in the crack 
So that was her first dirty joke. And then she would tell you next, she'd say, have you uh, read the book Under the Bleachers? And you say, no, I haven't read that book. And she'd say, do you want to know who it's written by? And you'd say, well, of course. And she'd say it was written by Seymour Butts. So that's how she would, <laughs> she would start. She just kept going. I mean, she, and she made up her own joke. She went deer hunting with me. It gives you just another perspective of her. And one time we were sitting in the deer stand and, you know, it's pretty boring sitting there. And she said, dad, I have a joke I made up. I said, what's your joke? And she said, where do bees go to the bathroom? I said, I don't know. Where do they go to the bathroom? And she said, the BP station. So you get a sense, you know, she was a pretty sharp kid. You know, having Down syndrome did not hold her back from, from how people would normally think of Down syndrome children. And, you know, I miss her terribly. You know, she would, um, you know, she always gave me a big hug when I came home. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I miss that terribly. So she's the reason. You know, she, uh, you know, if, if it wasn't for her, her loving me, I mean, this, these get, this gets to be some long days. I've been putting a lot of sixteen-hour days, getting up at three in the morning, all working on Grace's case, and then I just, you know, when at times when you just want to take a break or whatever, I just think, no, I'm not taking a break. Uh, she never took a break from loving me and I'm not going to take a break. This is, this is an important story to get out. So that's why I'm here. We're very grateful that you are here, Scott. And I, and I want to try and choose my language carefully here. And I'll, I'll ask you to help correct me if it's, if it is wrong. Right. The reason you are about to share what you're about to share is because you allege that the hospital that Grace was admitted to deliberately ended her own life, ended her life through medical malpractice or deliberate nefarious nature? And I'm not going to cross the line and say deliberate. You know, personally, you know, I, I have an extremely strong uh, opinion. You can read between the lines. Um, but after I tell the story, you make up your own mind. And I was asked a couple of weeks ago, do you think Grace's death was premeditated? Uh, this was on a podcast, you know, and that that really um, gets my mind going into all the things that add up to uh, the conclusion that seems fairly obvious once you hear the evidence I have to present. Before you do that... Could you just please share with our audience what's the reason for being vocal? What what do you hope rather to be the outcome of you going public with this? Yeah, that's a great question. There's two two things. There's a physical piece to it, which the instant motivation was physical, which is to save people's physical life. <clears throat> you know, most people don't understand what is actually happening in the hospital. You know, they might hear some things on TV or in some podcasts, but then they'll chalk it up to conspiracy theory. And so this is a real life story from a real life dad with a real life daughter. And I had to self-discover what you and the people that I've been on podcasts with have known already for years and decades. I self-discovered it through Grace's death. And I'm here to tell you, it's not conspiracy theory. 
that was the first thing, you know, you, you just got to get this word out so people don't die physically. Um, then the, the second thing, which is, of course, infinitely more important than the physical is the spiritual. Uh, we're in a spiritual battle. And, you know, we know God wins in the end. But what is our responsibility in the interim? And in the interim, it's to communicate so that stories like this can prick people's heart. Um, if that does that for anybody listening, that is a tool that God can use to call you back to him. And you need to get right with him before you before you die. So we're hoping that Grace's story does that also. And what happened? Well, I'll... Uh, I'll walk through, uh, I, chronologically, it's a lot easier to tell the story. So I'll walk through the story chronologically. And then as I do, you just interrupt with questions. So it's, it's a lot easier if you interrupt while I'm telling it, because then we cover the questions you have while I'm going through it. So we, we before Grace uh, got COVID, we had prepared at home with all the frontline doctors protocol. And so Grace was on uh, multiple vitamins um, before she got COVID just to basically prepare prepare her. And my wife was on those same things. I've been on vitamin protocols for years because of having heart disease. So, but they got on it and just in advanced preparation, Grace got a, what we thought was a cold on September 28th. So we got her on ivermectin right away. Uh, we this was last year, 2021? In 2021, yes. We tested her for COVID at home with a home test on October 1st because we were planning on going to a wedding and we just thought, you know, she was fine with us that we'll go. But if she's if she's positive, we wouldn't go so we wouldn't spread it. So she tested positive. Again, we didn't think anything of it. On October 6th, her oxygen level was in the high 80s. And so we thought that was an emergency. So we took her to urgent care which that ended up going from urgent care to the emergency room. Uh, they, they did a CT scan to see if she had blood clots because the, the blood chemistry they ran in the urgent care showed she had a high D-dimer, which is a blood chemistry parameter that predicts clots. Her CT scan came back negative, And uh, ultimately, the emergency room physician recommended admitting Grace to the hospital. Yeah, this this is a pretty big piece of the take-home message. At that moment, I agreed, not knowing that I could have just rejected that suggestion and, and they would have had to prescribe oxygen and a steroid uh, and I would have taken Grace home. She'd be alive today. So that's a fairly substantial take-home message for people is if you are going to a hospital you don't have to check in. You know, if you need to go to the emergency room, that's one thing. Checking into the hospital is another. And even more important than that is all of us at some point in our future are probably going to end up in a hospital. The time to check out the hospital and vet them is not when you're laying in the emergency room. You've got to do it ahead of time to see which hospitals have bought into the agenda and which ones are free thinkers and, and that care about the patient. So that's something to do now while you're healthy. Ultimately, the hospital at that point said, uh, 
when they when they recommended admitting her, I said, well, I'll be staying with her. And they said, well, you can't. And I said, what's the reason? And they said, the hospital policy doesn't allow patients in a COVID room. And I said, well, I'll be taking Grace home then. After two hours, they came back with a decision that said, we decided you can stay as long as you don't leave the room. So I said, of course, I'm not going to leave the room. I don't have any place to go. I want to take care of my daughter. So we waited about 10 hours in the emergency room. We got into a room at about midnight on October 7th. This is last October, uh, you know, a little over six months ago now. And the first day, you know, I really just expected uh, kind of a mini vacation with my best buddy. I, that's really what I thought was going to happen. And the first day was like that. I mean, we ordered food off the menu. We watched some movies, um, basically just goofed off. Yeah. Was this a private or public hospital, Scott? Well, I don't know that there's a such thing as a public hospital, but it would be the equivalent because it was at St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Appleton, Wisconsin. So you'd think, well, that sounds like a small hospital, but it's part of a huge conglomerate of Ascension Hospital System, which is 140 plus hospitals. They're huge. They're one of the largest in the country. So maybe the so, language that, that they use over here or... Uh back where I'm from is a little bit different. But private would mean it's it's covered by health insurance uh, and the conditions are usually a lot better. You get your own room, that kind of thing. The, and the public would just be the, you know, the free one, the Medicaid equivalent. Well, this would be then, I would say, private. But, I mean, it's as you hear the story, you're going to find out that they really have become public because they have been bought technically, not legally, by the government, the government's running them. And that's why Grace, you know, ultimately that's why Grace died because they, they didn't use their heads. You know, how can you keep doing the same thing for two years running? And when you see the death rate from what you're following, wouldn't just pure logic after you, let's say you're, you killed X number of people the first week following a protocol, wouldn't the next week you try something different or start studying what's about this protocol is killing people. But I mean, it's so strange. I mean, the attitude in this hospital, I heard it, I'll bet you I heard it uh, 20, 30 times because I, you would see these, these things they're doing and I would challenge them and they would, they would talk down to me saying, saying we've been doing this for two years. We're given 110%. Like, boy, oh boy. I mean, they really had an arrogant attitude about what they're doing. And, it, you know, it's, it's not good. And I just can say, you know, I think God has interesting ways of doing things. I went into a different hospital three days after Grace died in substantially worse condition. I just about died the first night. But, I, of course, I didn't go to the hospital that killed Grace. I went to a different hospital that was part of a very small regional, uh, five, I think, five hospital chain. And the protocol that they used on me was literally opposite of what they did on Grace. And I think God uses those type of things, and certainly in my case, so that I could research Grace's case objectively and then also tell the story objectively with a degree of accuracy and confidence that you couldn't have unless you went through that experience in a different hospital yourself. So we're at we're at the point where Grace has been diagnosed with COVID. You're in the hospital. You can't, you cannot release her. 
she's being held really against her will or your will. At and this point, I could have still released her. Um, I did not know any of this until after doing the research in, in uh, the hospital system. They allow you to check yourself out or the advocate check the patient out um, up until the point they're classified ICU. Grace got classified ICU when they put a sedation drug on her called Presidex. I didn't know any of this. Um, but once, you know, they when they classified her as ICU, they never changed rooms. They never changed care. Nothing changed, but her classification changed. And at that point, if I tried to remove her, it would have been against medical advice, which would have been a lot steeper hoop to jump through. But, you know, the idea of removing her, um, you know, it crossed my mind a couple of times, but, you know, I, you overall believe in the white coat. And, you know, that's another take-home message is, you know, the white coat needs to earn your trust, not blindly trust them. So I'll jump back into the timeline here. So October 7th was the first full day in the hospital. Um, October 8th was the first significant event. At 8 o'clock in the morning, the doctor came in and said, you're going to have to put your daughter on a ventilator in the next two hours. And I said, what is that recommendation based on? And he said, we did a blood gas draw last evening. And I said, what time? And he said, 1130. And I said, well, at 1130, we just got done wrestling with Grace, me and two of the nurses for about two and a half, three hours. And her blood pressure, we were, what we were wrestling with her with was getting oxygen situated. In the emergency room, she was on a regular cannula. Then they want to put her on a high flow cannula, which shoots air up your nostrils at 40 miles an hour. Then a BiPAP, all of which was not necessary. But I didn't know that at the time. I thought oxygen was key. So we got all this done. Her blood pressure was 235 over 135. Her heart rate was 150 beats per minute just because of the anxiety related to that. She calmed down then. She gave me a big hug, said, sorry, dad, which is just typical grace. She was a great kid. Uh, so then, you know, they take this blood gas draw. So then he's relying on that blood gas draw for a recommendation. I said, I think you got to retake the numbers because they're not accurate. So they did. And, and Grace was fine. So we dodged the ventilator bullet at that time. But I got educated on ventilators at that moment because I asked him, what's the prognosis with a ventilator? And he said, only 20% of people walk out alive once they're put on a ventilator. I found subsequently the actual number is substantially lower than that. And it's even worse than that because most of the people who walk out alive end up dying in the first year because of damage done to their lungs from the ventilator. So we made a decision at that time. Grace wasn't going on a ventilator no matter what. And they, they asked us four times after that, not with the same backdrop. So this guy had what he thought was the evidence to put Grace on a ventilator. The other times they asked us was for a pre-approval or a pre-authorization to put her on a ventilator just in case just in case, meaning if they thought she needed it and they would frame it that these type of things tend to happen in the middle of the night when we can't get a hold of the family. And you think, you know, we're suspicious at this point because, you know, if we approve this, they're going to put her on a ventilator when we're not looking essentially. And so we never approved a ventilator. The, um, the next significant, you know, there was a lot of significant events here. I just, I'm trying to hit the high points to give people a flavor of what the care was like before we get into the, 
the um, egregious last day, the care was terrible. Um, I would say that, you know, there were certain high points. You know, there were certain times like when the respiratory therapist came in on the evening of the seventh and fitted Grace with a mask. She did a great job. Um, one of the doctors, I could sit down with him and ask questions. He seemed to do a great job. Uh, but for the most part, I would say the the care was a strong D minus. So I'd rate overall the care while Grace was there as a DD plus. And this next example just shows you uh, what I'm talking about. And ultimately, this example and many other ones led to me getting kicked out of the hospital on October 10th. Uh, on October 9th, Grace was hungry. I ordered food, started feeding her. You know, Grace obviously could feed herself, but she couldn't feed herself in that setting because of the BiPAP mask. And so I started feeding her, a nurse comes running in and says, you can't do that. I said, what's the reason? And she said, uh, Grace's oxygen saturation is only 85%. So I started processing that, and I thought, I, this cannot be. You know, she was in the high 90s just on a regular cannula in the emergency room. She's doing fine. There's no reason it should be at 85. And I had all of my COVID materials in the room suspecting I would get COVID while I was with Grace, which I did. I got a COVID about, I tested myself at one o'clock back on the 7th and I was positive because I had a fever. Anyway, I, um, one of the tools I had in the room was a, my own oxygen saturation meter. So I put it on Grace's finger and it read 95%. And so then I called the nurse back in and I asked her, why does my 50, or at first I asked her, is my meter accurate? She said, yes, it is. I said, why is my $50 meter more accurate than your $50,000 meter. And she said, the leads get sweaty. And I said, well, if you know that, why don't you proactively change out the leads every three or four hours or whatever it takes to give an accurate reading, given this is the primary statistic you're using to manage my daughter's care. And she snottily responded, you should just be thankful you caught this. After Grace died, I got the the invoice that was sent to Medicaid and found out in spite of my challenge, they only changed out the leads three times in seven days at a billed cost to Medicaid of $78 a lead change out. And so that's crazy. You know, now we were wise to oxygen being, being uh, charted wrong. So I was watching her oxygen on my own, not trusting their machine anymore. When my daughter just came in, she did the same. And uh, 15 minutes before they gave the lethal dose of morphine to Grace, which you'll hear when we go through her last day, uh, the oxygen differential was more than 40 points between how we were reading it with the, the meter that the oxygen said was accurate compared to the, um, well, the meter that the, the nurses said was accurate compared to the meters that the hospital was using. And that's crazy. But what, so what's their motivation of reporting false numbers? I mean, I've connected these dots and I think this is accurate that, you know, when, when you get a call that your loved one dies, and you found out they put them on a ventilator, they can now justify the ventilator decision because they'll show you how they charted oxygen. So their charted oxygen is arbitrarily low to justify a ventilator. So then why do they want a ventilator? Well, that's the big payday with COVID. Uh, the average COVID patient, if they get put on a ventilator, will reap the hospital in the neighborhood of $300,000. So it's huge. Their motivation to put you on a ventilator is, is huge financially. 
in the ventilator is a kiss of death. Just just to reiterate what you are saying there, Scott, because if people haven't heard about this, this is 100% the truth. You can do your own digging. The hospitals were incentivized financially all across the world, certainly in the Western world, to for, for different protocols, like you're saying, to go on ventilators, to be admitted into ICU uh, for certain drugs. There is a financial incentive to be put on a ventilator. And my mind is still blown at how that can be ethical in any way, shape, or form. I'm starting to get real angry, but I'm going to let you continue. Oh, it's, it's insanity. I mean, uh, Peter McCullough did a great job uh, explaining this. He says that, you know, in this, you've never seen a, a um, something like this in the history of the world where there's not a research component. It's all about death. There's only a death component. There's no research component. So if you just, just the logic behind it, if you took, all, there's estimated $4 trillion in taxpayer money already that has been used for COVID bonuses to hospitals in the United States, $4 trillion. So just, if that was just invested in research, just half of it in research, where would we be? But that that isn't the goal. You You start seeing this in the broader, picture of Agenda 21, um, trying to control the world population. And you start seeing what's happening in that broader picture, which, again, most people would think is a conspiracy. But as I go through, I've learned this through Grace's case, and I don't see it as a conspiracy anymore. There's too many facts that line up. You know, and this is a significant fact. How can you spend $4 trillion on death bonuses, $0 on research? Doesn't that sound crazy? It's not a conspiracy. Those numbers I just told you are fact. So how can that be unless there's some type of an agenda going on? Just before you continue, Scott, I want to just to for for anyone that's listening that's like thinking, come on, man, this is this is this is some intense, crazy stuff. How do we know, Scott, that you are not operating from a place of uh anger and sorrow from losing your daughter and and potentially creating something in your own mind to justify the experience. Yeah, great. So God made me analytical first. So uh, the doctor <laughs> the doctor who uh who helped us review all of Grace's records that we've known her since high school and she said to me, "Scott, uh, God made you just for this time because I am analytical." So I'd like to go through things. I like to study them. I was already writing up Grace's case before she died, just because I like to write things down. I like to do that. I had all these notes and I got to write to get them on paper. Um, but people don't know me from Adam. So how would you know? Well, I once I realized that there was a believability factor to this story, because you think this is just a crazy guy. I, you know, if you I'd encourage people to go to Grace's website, ouramazinggrace.net, take a look at the tragedy tab. Roughly 70% of my research is posted on the tragedy tab. It's huge. I mean, so then you you post the research with the documents, everything. So then the story becomes alive without a person telling it because all the research supports what I'm telling you. So that's one way you would say, you'd see that that I'm not crazy. the, you know, if somebody wants to come and meet me, you can make your own judgment. But the, the more important thing I would tell you is that 
God had to work the attitude of forgiveness in my heart before I could do this. You know, no one in their own uh, on their own could forgive the doctor and nurse. I mean, I'm what I would love more than anything, the best justice in this whole case would be for the doctor and nurse to come forward and repent. And uh, that would be fantastic because that's, you don't want, you don't want uh, eternity in hell to be wished on anybody. And so, you know, that's, uh, I would say that's uh, uh, maybe the biggest reason that this story is believable. Another, <laughs> I was, uh, I was thinking about this right when you asked, I'll just uh, point you to, let's see if I can, with my finger, do you see what's in the corner over here? Uh, I can see a shotgun. Yeah, it's a loaded <laughs> shotgun. So why do I, I, I keep a loaded shotgun here now when I do interviews because, um, you know, this is the only thing I've done for my own personal safety. One of the podcasts uh, I was on, they called two days after the podcast and said, have you received any death threats yet? I said, no. And he said, well, we've been getting them at the station. He said, your podcast is the largest podcast ever downloaded in the history of the station. And he said, you got to, you know, you really should start protecting yourself. And I just, you know, I, I thought, well, God has put his hedge of protection around. Um, and, you know, so I carry a, I carry a loaded pistol in the, in the, in the truck I drive and I carry, you know, put a shotgun where I do interviews because, you know, that's, you know, this is risky going out and doing this. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm approaching a hundred interviews now and, you know, you're out there. And, you know, you really have no protection and uh, that's okay. You know, if I get, I've told a few of the podcasters that if I get taken out over this, this story is going to get so huge and I, I'm willing to get taken out over it. That's okay with me. So does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, it does. It does. And I, uh, I, I felt it was important to at least ask that question once because of the, the highly emotive nature of what's what's been unfolding here and how fresh and raw it still is uh from a time frame point of view and i it's my obligation i think to play devil's advocate and it you know sometimes i rely heavily on my gut scott and, and my intuition and and uh not for a single moment do, have i doubted your sanity <laughs> if, there's, if there's any chance i wouldn't have entertained even having you on the podcast so you got my backing but uh for for the other people that are maybe a bit on the fence there you go so what yeah, then what love, happened you know that that type of question i would love if it was a call-in program for people to do that so you know, i was, didn't take offense to your question at all i love that type of question because i think if it's on people's heart they should ask it you know, I'll be glad to answer any question. I'm not going to hold back anything. Uh, at this point, we don't have a lawsuit going. So, I mean, I can say anything. And that's what we've chosen to do is to get out and share the message. I, I'm not restricted in one thing that I, you know, that I can say at this point. Just on the forgiveness component uh, and the repenting, which for those who aren't religious or spiritual in any capacity, it's just, it's another word for forgiveness, really, isn't it? Uh and I could be wrong on that. I wonder, well, is is the request to to resolve all of this would be an apology from the doctor and the nurse involved, a public a public apology or even a private one? I, you know, public doesn't really do anything. And my, you know, they they killed our daughter. 
So, I mean, the apology to be real would have to be to the person who you offended. A public apology does nothing. Um, you know, so it needs to be to the person you offended. You know, at one point, I, I don't remember the time frame here. It was, uh, I wrote an editorial for a, a local paper and I didn't even remember. I had put the doctor's name and the nurse's name in the article and the husband of the nurse emailed me and asked me to remove their, his wife's name from the article. And, you know, in the email, they didn't deny anything that I was saying is true. All they were worried is about their, she, he said, well, we're worried about our, the safety of our family. And that was his motive of writing. And so I prayed about that and got the, what I believed was the answer, meet with them. So I emailed them back and I said, I'd love to uh, meet with you and your wife and talk about this. And they didn't want to do that. So um, you know, just think through that idea. I mean, wouldn't you want to come clean? You know, it's like the person who, who murdered somebody and then, you know, they keep that and it's bothering them their whole life. Finally, they turn themselves in. So, I mean, I'm hoping that happens. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think the apology has to be, I mean, we would, I think, know if it's real because they would, you know, we're, we're out there, they can get a hold of us easy. You know, so you'd think that it would come in the form of a phone call to say, hey, can we meet and just talk? Yeah. So let's let's continue on. What happened next? So the next day was October 10th. That was a Sunday. Uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning, the head nurse came in with an armed guard and said, you need to leave immediately. And I said, well, what is that based on? And she said three things. Number one is you've been shutting off the alarms at night. And I defended that because... I told her I've been shutting off the alarms because I had the nurses train me how to shut off the non-essential alarms. I said, they're going off 20, 30 times a night. And oftentimes it's 20 minutes for the nurse to come in and turn it off. After the first night, I asked the nurses, can you have these alarms ring outside of the room, Ring it, have them ring at the nurse's station? They said, no, we can't, which I found out subsequently is a lie. And I know it's a lie because the hospital that I stayed in, I asked the same thing. And they, they respected that. They didn't have the alarms go off in my room. They had them go off to the nurse's station. So I even asked, what's the reason they're going off? I mean, you can't make this up. It's so crazy. So they said, well, every time Grace moves her arm, the alarm goes off. I said, well, what's the reason? Well, they put the, the IV in the crux of her elbow. So I said, well, why did you do that? They said, well, that was the easiest place for us. I said, you got to be kidding me. So then that leads to the second reason. She said the last three shifts of nurses don't want you in the room. So, I mean, obviously you can tell why they don't want me in the room. I'm no medical expert, but I know what a foolishness is. So I'm challenging this foolishness. And then the third thing, which is it, it's completely laughable and is their official excuse, which is they said, we suspect you have COVID. Well, no kidding. I have COVID. I'm in a room with a, my little girl who's spewing COVID. You know, of course I'm going to get COVID. And if it was such a concern, why didn't you ask me if I had it or test me? I mean, you got every testing piece of equipment known to man in this hospital, just test me. But they use that as their official excuse. So I called my wife. I called an attorney friend of mine. And you know, after an hour of arguing with this woman, um, the attorney said, you know, she said she, she's going to call the Appleton Police Department. You know, they had 
the guy with the gun, you know, you picture, you know, is he going to actually pull a gun on me? You know, what's going on? And anyway, he, he suggested just leave peacefully. And this is maybe the hardest piece of this whole story, not leaving, but, you know, I, uh, I gave Grace a hug and, uh, you know, I could, you know, she was sad. And uh, that's the last time I saw her alive. You know, I, you know, physically we saw her die on FaceTime, but I mean, that's the last time I saw her alive. Um, you know, of course, you know, you replay this, you know, for the first two months after she died, I got up two, three times a, uh, a week in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, instead of in bed, why didn't I take her home? You know, she was doing great. I could have just taken her home with me right then. It would have been against medical advice because she was already on this crazy drug called Presidex. But you know, it's I don't want to dwell on that. It's it's a it's really a minor point in this whole thing. But we um this this uh um it's somewhat of a significant point is that the the armed guard escorted me out all the way to my truck and he said to me at the truck, he said, Scott, you need to take this to a higher level. And he was encouraging me because he he knew I was in the right. Anyway, we spent then um, the next, so this was on a Sunday. Um, thankfully, Grace's special needs attorney was available. We started working out how we're going to get uh, my daughter, Jessica, in the room. Cindy couldn't be in the room, my wife, because she had COVID. So then, you know, we started at eight o'clock Monday morning. Uh, ultimately, she had to negotiate with the hospital attorney, and we had 44 hours without advocacy coverage. That's significant because during that 44 hours, we learned that Grace, back on October 9th, when I was in the room, they placed her on a sedation bed called Presidex. Presidex is used as an anesthesia drug for surgery. It's only supposed to be used for three hours, according to the package insert, 24 hours max. They started Grace on that drug on October 9th. During the 44 hours that we didn't have advocacy, they increased the dosage sevenfold, which is illegal. They had her on it before her last day, four full days on this sedation drug. That's illegal. Now we get into Jessica in the room. Uh, Jessica had similar experience to me the first day in the room is just, you know, goofing around with Grace in spite of her being sedated. She was still herself so much so that the night before she died, which was October 12th, she sat up in the bed. He has his IPAP mask on. Jessica called her two boys, Grace's nephews. And, and, uh, she, she sat up in the bed and hollered to them waving hi boys as loud as she could. Cause it was through this BiPAP mask. She just was, she was herself yet. Jessica charted Grace's oxygen through the night. It was 98, 99% the whole night. The doctor called us. Now we're getting into Grace's last day, and I'm going to just kind of rip through this. This is pretty intense. And again, I want you to, to hear this in light of, was this intentional? Was it premeditated? How does this all fit into the overall agenda? So I want to frame it with, with those thoughts in mind. Um. So the doctor called us at eight o'clock, my wife and I, and he wanted a decision. He had called us the night before uh, for the fourth time with this ventilator request. So he wanted our decision. We told him, no, we're not going to give you a pre-authorization for a ventilator. He then made the comment that Grace did so well yesterday. I think we should uh, put her on a feeding tube. 
And so why did she need a feeding tube? Well, they prevented me from feeding her. They prevented Jess from feeding her. They only gave her a few protein shakes. You know, she's malnutritioned at this point because the hospital made her that way. So Cindy and I foolishly approved that, you know, foolishly, we say after the fact, because we just thought, well, of course she needs nutrition. If that's what she needs, you, know, you still believe in the white coat. So now you'll hear how that fits into this last day. So roughly 8.30 in the morning, Jessica, there's an IC, a 14-year ICU nurse. This is the one whose husband uh, got a hold of me, wanted me to retract her name from the article that I wrote. This 14-year ICU nurse is in charge of Grace's care that day. This is significant because when you hear the series of meds, you could think, could this just be a mistake? It can't be a mistake. Uh, a 14-year ICU nurse delivered the meds. Um, the, we learned that the computer system gives a uh, audible warning when you do a med combination like this because it's basically a warning saying this is going to kill the person. They had to override that. And a pharmacist has to sign off on meds ordered by a doctor. So you start thinking, you think, oh my gosh, everybody's in on this. And I believe that's the case. So now Jessica says to this 14-year ICU nurse, I'm going to take a shower. She says, you can't. When I was in the room, you'll remember, they told me I couldn't leave. So I showered in Grace's room. There's a shower right there. It's, you know, it was a private room. It was a nice room. Um, they said, Jess, you need to go home and take a shower. Jess figures she's going to be there three, four days before Grace gets out. So she goes home, takes a shower. She's back inside of an hour. When she comes back, she overhears two doctors and a nurse in the hallway say the family's not going to like this. So she says, what aren't they going to like? And they said, we restrained Grace while you were gone. She said, why? Well, because she wanted restrained, I mean, they strapped her arms down to the bed. So what's the reason? And they said, well, she wanted to go to the bathroom. She wanted to get out of the bed to go, go poop. And they strapped her down. So how I got clued in to this from a, a lot higher level is one of the attorneys that we're working with said, Scott, do you think that you would have been strapped down to the bed if you had to go to the bathroom. I said, no, I would have had the nurses help me with my IV and walk me to the, you know, they would have guided me to the bathroom, but they did this because they could. So that Sunday, God got me up at three o'clock in the morning. I went through all the doctor's reports. Again, there's 22 doctor's reports written for the seven days Grace was in the hospital. I'd looked for one thing only, Down syndrome. And they wrote in the reports, 36 different times that Grace had Down syndrome. Is that necessary? That would be like you and I, they write white male. Are they going to repeat that 36 different times in 22 reports? Is that, is that an important factor? You know, it's not important at all. There's no different treatment for somebody with Down syndrome. You know, it, it, it's, an, it's a piece of evidence that shows the agenda that's involved, you know, to take out the disabled and take out the elderly, which, you know, you'll see the evidence on the website. Anyway, so now they use that as an excuse to ratchet up the precedence further. Instead of waiting for Grace's numbers to read around after they unstrap her, after Jessica's back in the room, the 14-year ICU nurse gets challenged by the other nurse to say, I think we should wait for the feeding tube until Grace's number stabilized. She says, no, we're not waiting. So 
So they put the feeding tube in. Now they use that as, as an excuse to ratchet up the Presidex to max dose at 1048 in the morning. Remember, Grace had a great day the day before. 1048 in the morning of her last day, they have her on max dose. So now this is the- What, is, what does Presidex do? What does Presidex do? It, it uh, gets you ready for surgery. This is what they use to take you out for surgery. For general Grace, surgery? What's that? For general surgery, like when you were completely KO'd? Correct. That's right. what they do. So Grace is now completely knocked out from this precedent. It's insanity. So then, I'm, you know, now she's not, you know, Jess is there. So, I mean, is it, this isn't that we're making this up, that from the records, we have eyewitness testimony to this. So she, yeah, Grace is knocked out. In spite of Grace being knocked out, they gave her a dose of lorazepam at 1125, which is an anti-anxiety med. I mean, is a person knocked out? Do they have anxiety? Yeah, I'm, obviously that's rhetorical because it's it's foolishness beyond foolishness. At 546, they gave her another dose of the anti-anxiety med, lorazepam. Three minutes later, another dose. So now at this time, she's at max dose Presidex, two doses of lorazepam, three minutes apart. And then at 6.15, so now in a 29-minute window, they gave her a two-milligram dose of morphine as an IV push, which means instantaneously. You and I would not have survived that combination of meds. We have over 100 medical professionals that have said that. We have testimony from the doctor who wrote or helped us go through all the records. She even went on record anonymously, but I mean, I have her quote in the website uh, that she thinks it's intentional because it's so egregious. An intensivist who's a specialist in med combinations, he wrote and told me the meds killed your daughter. It gets substantially worse than this. So now Jessica senses Grace is cold. This is now 6.15. So 6.30, she's seen Grace is cold. She tries to get this 14-year ICU nurse in the room to take a temperature, asking her, "Is you know, Grace is cold. She says, that's normal. She won't come in the room. She said, just put a blanket on her. So now Jessica is trying to get these nurses in, according to the package insert for morphine. The package insert, the rules are supposed to follow. This is on the website also. It says morphine should not be combined with those other two meds because it causes death. And if you use morphine, you're supposed to have the reversal drug bedside and monitor the patient. None of that happened. No nurse foot in that room after the lethal dose of morphine was delivered up until after Grace died. Jessica called Cindy and I on FaceTime in 2010. She said, Dad, Grace's numbers are, are dropping like crazy. I was in. She said, I won't come in. Scott, just to, just to cut you off for one second, we're just having a little bit of an issue with the internet. All right. So Jess calls us at 7.20 panicking, and she, so I said, get the nurses in because her numbers are dropping. She said they won't come in the room. And so Cindy and I now start hollering, save our daughter. The nurses holler back, she's DNR, do not resuscitate. This is the first we knew she's DNR. We holler back, she's not our save our daughter. Remember, they're supposed to have the, the reversal drug bedside. They could have saved her at any point. When Jessica first said she's cold, they should have just used the reversal drug and saved her. But they did nothing. 
we watched her die at 7.27. During that window, Jess ran out into the hallway to see what's going on. And a nurse had it right up on the computer screen. The doctor ordered Grace in our, so we can't do anything about that. That violated that combination of Dr. Label. All right. All right. So Jess runs out in the hallway and and uh, this nurse reads off the computer that the doctor ordered the DNR. We found out subsequently in reviewing the records, we found out all the records, a medical malpractice nurse said there's at least a thousand pages missing. We got the extra 948 pages. We found out the doctor put the DNR order on Grace at 1056, eight minutes after they did next dose precedex. So and one of the attorneys believes that that was their way to cover their butt. They thought that the precedex was going to take Grace out. So they wanted to put this DNR order in to prevent revival at that time. Anyway, you know, Grace survived all that. So they kept using this combination of meds. Uh, afterward, at that evening, Jeff shared with us that there was an armed guard posted outside the room and, you know, presumably to prevent the nurses from coming in. And we know that it wasn't just an accident. He was there because Jess crawled in the bed with Grace after Grace died and held her waiting for my wife to get there. I drove my wife to the hospital after Grace died and, and the armed guard watched Jess through the nurse's window the entire time. Well, we got clued into that. This is, there's some shenanigans going on was after Cindy and Jess cleaned Grace up, I was in the truck waiting because I had COVID. Uh, the pa our pastor met us there. The um, the funeral director did after everything was done. The pastor's walking my wife out in the wheelchair. One of the nurses had Grace's belongings on a cart and leaned down and said to my wife, "Me and several of the other nurses don't think Grace should have died today." And that started this whole this whole process of research. So. Um, you know, so the research into Grace's case is one thing, but then the research into why it happened is another, which, you know, we should go through questions you have about what I just said first, because I mean, it, it's, you can't make it up. It's so terrible. What I, I want to do, Scott, is I want to leave a lot of this to the imagination of the listener or the watcher, because this gets released on YouTube as well as the other podcast platforms. And I would hate for this video to be taken down uh, because people are going to be, the, the people that, are, that need to be curious to this are going to do further research. And I think if you could reiterate the website where people can find all of this information, that would be really beneficial. And then I'll ask a couple of questions that I've got. Perfect. Yeah, the website has all the research that I just went through. It also has the conclusions as to why, um, some factual conclusions and some speculative conclusions, and you'll you'll see the difference. Uh, the website is ouramazinggrace.net, and you'll there's various tabs. There's there's some cool tabs with Grace's life, some videos. Uh, she was a big Elvis Presley fan. There's a tribute to. Elvis and she met Priscilla Presley. We had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Priscilla, Elvis's wife at Graceland. And there's so many cool things. I mean, you'll, everybody will fall in love with Grace. So do that first, fall in love with Grace first, and then, then check out the research and the conclusions and make up your own mind. And then, you know, reach out to us. If you want to 
you want to talk about it, uh, I don't have my phone number posted directly there, but you can, I return every email. And if you need a phone call, I'm glad to do that. If you want to post your own story, we have a place for that. So the website is, is uh, it, every other day, at least we've got updates on it. So check it regularly and be glad to, to talk with you personally. We appreciate that tremendously, Scott. And I, what I would say is, and it's not that I'm trying to protect this this uh, audience on YouTube at all. It's just there's no point uh, if it's going to be taken down. Um, there's enough there's enough intrigue there, hopefully for for people that are on the path with this to do their own digging, because I think that that journey of discovery is what awoke me to treating most doctors now like glorified search engines. And I am justified in my own mind in thinking that with my own health journey and that of my now wife and all the miscarriages that we've had and the complete oversight from the Australian doctors uh, only to be shown from one Russian gynecologist last year, uh, something that was glaringly obvious. So my, my levels of trust with the medical fraternity at the moment is four-fifths of not much. And, uh, you know, if I've got a compound fracture and my bone is protruding out my skin, yes, I would like to utilize those services. But in terms of nutrition and, and all the other garbage, there is they have no clue. And uh, I really, really implore you for – this this is six months ago, and I just I really implore you for sharing the story and and creating some awareness around the utterly nefarious nature of what is happening. And if you're anything like I am, you get to a point where the evidence piles up so heavy that it's beyond any shadow of any doubt that there is deliberate nefarious work at play with the uh, with the the world at the moment. That's what happened with me. I mean, I have well in excess of 500 hours of research in this now, and that's what happened to me. You get to the point where, oh, my gosh, you know, I still believe in innocent till proven guilty. So that's why I'm not, you know, I'm not saying what is specifically on my mind. But, you know, the it gets to be an overabundance of evidence pointing to just one thing. And it's it's uh, it's like I can't hardly you know, almost you can't believe it yourself, but you did the research yourself so that you've got to believe it. Scott, do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience today? Sure, I have I have a few things. Uh, I, I want to reiterate what I said at the beginning, which is one of the take-home messages is stay out of the hospital. And I don't mean if you, like you said, if you have a protruding bone, but even if you have that, the second, take-home message is check out the hospitals to go to ahead of time. You know, the hospital that I went to, um, I can't say enough good things about. I mean, they knocked it out of the park. They saved my life. And it wasn't, it wasn't anything other than God's grace that, that did it. You know, why did I go to that hospital? It's interesting. The hospital I went to shares a driveway with a a competing hospital. So it is so strange. If I would have just taken the next driveway uh, to the north, I would have died because they're part of the the big hospital system. But I went to the, you know, just 
that that's how that's how important it is for you to check out the hospital beforehand. And then the third thing, which is of course most important, is get right with God. You know, take yeah. You know, there's a, a tab on Grace's website that says "Where was God?" I, I would encourage anybody that has a question read that tab. Uh, because I'm confident God was was there the whole time. He didn't leave Grace. He didn't leave us. Uh, he wasn't doing this maliciously. Um, he has a purpose. And the where where was God tab is, is uh, it's short. Uh, I wrote it myself. It's, it's not any it's uh, it's not any great writer that did it. But just check it out. I think it's important. So thank you for that, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Scott Shearer. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.